The following episode of the 9pm edict does not contain strong language. However, it does contain hallucinating computers, ethical considerations, and badly drawn platypus. Friday, the 20th of October, 2023. Hello for the first special guest episode of this spring series. I'm joined once again by one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence, Scientia Professor Toby Walsh, who's chief scientist at the UNSW AI Institute. He's also got a new book out. We'll plug that in a bit. In this episode, we note that AI is worth big bucks. We've actually never seen such fantastic growth of wealth ever before. We talk about the politics of AI. I don't know what, what characteristic they're selecting for in politics, but it's not, I don't think it's intelligence. And we ponder the shape of robots. There are very few places where you actually really want a humanoid, human-shaped robot. And much, much more. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm Kenya with a K and an AI with Scientia Professor Toby Walsh. Toby Walsh, when we last spoke, which was 13 months ago to the day, the Whoa. 13th of September last year, uh, you just launched the AI Institute here at you know, NSW. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, chat GPT exploded since then. <laughs> Mid-journey, DAL-E. <laughs> AI has exploded into the public consciousness in a big way. What, what happened? Why did that happen? It's interesting. I'm still trying to understand why it happened because ChatGPT wasn't the first chatbot. It wasn't even the first large language model. Uh, but somehow it caught people's imaginations. I think it was perhaps the first time that people could see AI visibly and potentially AI being useful to them. And mm. AI has been around. There's a lot of there's, you know, there's been an estimate that perhaps 20 times a day, some sort of AI touches your life every time you get really every time you get directions out of Google Maps or you get a book recommendation on Amazon or a film recommendation on Netflix. That's some AI that's doing it. But those weren't very obvious uses of AI. It wasn't obvious that it was AI doing that for you. Whereas with ChatGPT, suddenly you could sit there and have a conversation and it was very obvious that it was AI that was answering. And I, I had a bit of a play again this morning to remind myself how conversational it is. It was veritably chatty. Um, you know, I, I said I'm going to be interviewing one of the world leaders in artificial intelligence today. And he said, oh, how lucky for you. <laughs> wow. I'm pleased I've got friends in, in those sorts of places. Actually, that was a design choice. When it was mm. trained, it was trained to be quite chatty and friendly and you could have trained it to be other things i mean there's actually there is a, a large language model that's trained on 4chan that is quite oh dear racist and vile and will speak the way that you will find conversations in 4chan you can, you can imagine what that might be like good heavens I, I, <laughs> that's even worse than when microsoft's chatbot turned racist when tay became a misogynist a Nazi-loving 
A beast, yes. So now we've we've got this, and I saw ChatGPT's got like a, a billion users or something outrageous. Um, when we look at those large language models, I mean, at one level they're just predictive text on steroids, multiple steroids. But when when they say it has 10 billion parameters, or one even now, I think they're saying a trillion parameters. What what does that actually mean? Well, they they are, in some sense, some of the most complex pieces of software that we've ever engineered. And although we, we, we don't know what the parameters mean, I mean, that's part of the, part of the challenge here is that, that they are very complex pieces of software that somehow are capturing, summarizing the data upon which they've been trained. And, and so not surprisingly, there's you know a lot of outrage at the moment when it's been discovered that they've been trained on a lot of pirated books, including including one of your including own, including one of my own. Yes, the irony is not lost upon me. That an AI researcher whose book about AI was illegally used to train the AI itself. You're quite happy to say illegally used. I, the courts are going to decide whether mm. this was legal or not. Um, it's. I, I don't mean in, I'm not trying to catch you out there. I, I'm just wondering whether you have a firm opinion. Oh, I have a very firm opinion. It's the usual um, way that Silicon Valley treats other people's intellectual property, which mm. which is, um, you know, they're testing the limits here and the courts will decide what are the limits. I mean, it doesn't seem to me this is particularly fair use. It doesn't seem to me that this is particularly sustainable. Mm. Um, you know, I put months and months of effort into writing those books and to have that taken away. Well, fortunately, you know, I have another job, but there, but you know, there are many people who's, you know, that is their primary source of income. Writers don't earn a lot of money. You know, the median income for an Australian author these days, I think, is around about $20,000 a year. That's you're struggling to live on that. And if suddenly we can now take all of that and use use that to, you know, the only reason these large language models can write in the style of Margaret Atwood or Toby Walsh is because they've been trained on the works of Margaret Atwood and the works of Toby Walsh. If I can throw a devil's advocate question sure. at this, though. If I'm an English student, I will read the books of Margaret Atwood or uh, an engineer, I might read the books of Toby Walsh or whatever, and I learn from them, I absorb that information, and then I might choose to write, say, a parody of a, a, a Margaret Atwood book. I'm all for freedom of speech. I'm all for people to parody me or Margaret Atwood or indeed anyone else. I don't know why we're picking on her today. But, but e equally, you have to think about uh, it's, it's a different scale. Um, you're able... You're to, for example, um, these large language models have ingested books three, this rather controversial, pirated um, source of books. Mm. Um, there's nearly 200,000 books in books three. You couldn't read in a lifetime. You'd struggle to read 200,000 books mm. in a lifetime. Good thing we've got computers to read, read them for us. Yes, yeah, so we're talking about a different scale. And, it's mm. not, and also, unlike humans, they've got, you know, perfect recall. Um, and it's therefore not clear to me whether this, whether necessarily actually law is fit for this. I mean, it's worth remembering that copyright was invented 
to deal with printing. Pre before we had printing, before we would print works, you could copy them, but it required monks in monasteries writing out in longhand in script text. And that meant it was actually quite difficult, expensive, painful to copy people's works. But suddenly when we invented printing, you could very easily, very cheaply, very quickly copy people's works. And so copyright was a response to that, to ensure that we made the production of books sustainable for the people whose work it was that was being reproduced. Um, and so I, I wonder if we're not going to have to introduce some new form of intellectual property to protect the labours and the effort and the sweat that people went into making those books. Because copyright doesn't exactly apply because the text that these language models write is new. They mm. put, set, put sentences together. They may be in the style of myself or the infamous Margaret Atwood, um, but those might be quite new sentences. And so copyright, which applies just to the physical representation and the reproduction of the, those exact words, doesn't actually apply. But I do think that, you know, Margaret Atwood has put a a lifetime of writing into writing in the style of Margaret Atwood. And um, we and she do, does it exceptionally well. She does yeah. it exceptionally well. And so if that's taken from away from her, well, I'm not particularly worried about Margaret Atwood. I'm sure she's pretty wealthy. I think she's now. doing okay now, yeah. Okay. But I am worried about all the other um, mm. jobbing authors in the world and the uh, people who aspire to be the next Margaret Atwood if suddenly all of that income is taken away from them. And... Um, our cultural heritage is something that we should be very protective of. Um, and there is immense value, of course, let's not forget, being generated here. Um, these tech companies and these new startups are uh, creating immense wealth. I mean, OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, is probably the fastest uh, growing source of wealth on the planet. It's gone in less than 12 months to a valuation of over $90 billion, an annual revenue of over a billion dollars. We have actually never seen such fantastic growth of wealth ever before. It's, it is incredible how quickly language models are being used. I was at a, a conference recently, a tech conference, and it ended up being about AI because when people started to look at business decision-making, uh, they've already got AI dealing with looking at insurance claims and doing the first pass of, you know, do we pay this claim or not, uh, helping people choose you know, a loan product or, or whatever, and, and doing the first level of customer service. What's interesting, I found, is they say, oh, well, that's easy, we'll... we'll get rid of all of the low-level labour. Um, the problem then is that people coming into the business have never had the experience of yes. the nuts and bolts of the industry. And so they suddenly find themselves in charge of, of these AIs or, or having problems escalated to them as a human, and yet they don't have the experience because that's all being coded into the machines and is then lost somehow. You're right. Your, your observation, I think, pr brings out an important subtle difference, which is, for example, if you wanted to train a large language model to be able to understand language, 
Well, there were thousands, tens of thousands of books that are out of copyright you could have used. Mm. I mean, okay, maybe they might, since they have to be out of copyright, maybe they would speak quite archaically, although I think there might be some some pleasure and value in, in a very polite, old-fashioned chatbot to talk to. Mm. Um, but there was another reason that they chose book three and very current books to talk to train on was that they also then understand the content of those books. Mm. So if you want a chatbot to talk about AI, training it on Toby's books about AI is perhaps a good place to start. Mm. Um, and the reason that, you know, perhaps the reason that ChatGPT can speak so knowledgeably about AI is in part because it's been trained on my books and other people's books that were in copyright about AI. So it's not just language that they've acquired by the training, but it's also the the knowledge, the knowledge of the world that yes. was that was encapsulated in that. And that's in fact in fact that's you know the greater theft. It's not the language they could have they could have used out of copyright text to learn language, but it was the the knowledge that they've acquired. And indeed, I wrote a, a piece for an opinion piece for the Australian which was provocatively titled The Greatest Heist in Human History, which was this heist, the heist of all our knowledge, all our cultural knowledge, all our technical knowledge, um, that we're training these models by pretty much ingesting the contents of the internet, any any data set, and now increasingly it's multimodal, so it's including all our YouTube videos and all the antics that we get up to on YouTube. So that's, that's all our cultural knowledge, all our knowledge about the geography of the world, about the finance of the world, um, about science in the world, they're being trained on all the scientific papers that they can access. Um, And that's the sum total of humanity in some sense, all the stuff that we've learned over the last couple of, ever since we invented language. Couldn't you see that as a good thing though? I mean, if if, we want our robots our intelligences to be smarter and smarter oh, to give the yes, right answers it is it's on one level it's a very good thing it's a fantastically good thing on the other hand if that knowledge now is concentrated into the hands and the coffers of just a few silicon valley players i'm a bit a bit more nervous it's not if it was if it was the value was being shared then with humanity as opposed to being locked up in these companies, which, and let's not, let's say it as it is, which is the, there's nothing particularly open left about open AI. Mm. They're not telling us what the training data set is anymore. They're not telling us anymore what the architecture of the language model is. They're not telling us even how many parameters there are. It is about a trillion, as far as we know. But we don't know what the parameters are and we can't ever know what, even if they said, no, here's, here, here it is, here's the data set. Yeah, it's but we yeah. we don't know what these things even are. No, but it, it's it is actually quite important to understand, for example, the capabilities of these models, right? So people are rightly, not surprisingly, concerned, you know, about emergent behaviours, and suddenly they're they're answering law exams and medical school entrance exams and lots of other stuff. Well, it's actually impossible to know what is happening here, whether this is really, for example, emergent phenomena that's happening. Are they really um, answering these questions? Or is it, are they actually, they just recalling questions that were in the training set? In many cases, I suspect it's information retrieval that we're observing 
that there were many of those questions or something similar to those questions were in the training set? Well, this raises one of the most important questions in AI at the moment, I think, is which African country starts with K? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so do re- so you know what goes in the training set? You don't know whether they're making it up or not. Okay. The reason we're both laughing is that uh, it's still there. If you ask Google which African country begins with K, it will tell you... While there are 54 recognised countries in Africa, none of them begin with the letter K. The closest is Kenya, which which starts with a K sound, but is actually spelled with a K sound. It's always interesting to learn new trivia facts like this. Now, Uh, Can I share you my favourite fail, large language model fail? So this is a simple puzzle, and anyone listening will know the answer to this puzzle instantly. Um, I've got a five-liter jug and I've got a two-liter jug. Mm-hmm. How do I measure out three liters? Now, you know, you instantly know the answer, right? You fill the five-liter jug, you pour it into the two-liter jug, you're left with three liters in the five-liter jug. You've measured out mm. three liters. You ask ChatGPT how to solve that. It gives you an 11-step plan. It involves pouring liquids backwards and forwards between the jugs, so it looks right. And it ends, of course... With the beautiful, the 11th step, my favourite line here, which is, it says, now the two-litre jug will contain exactly three litres of liquid. Look, if it can do that. Yes. (laughs) We've solved a number of other problems, deep problems in physics Uh and cosmology, probably. Uh, But this is the thing, you're right, because uh, someone wrote uh, a piece about there being no country in Africa starting with K and that is is then on a bit of forum site and that's gone into the data set and the question matches exactly. Oh, well, here's that question. Here is someone's answer. That will do. Another one I found this morning is can you melt eggs? And yes, an egg can be melted. <laughs> uh-huh. Which, yeah. Um, I'll also put on the website, for those of you uh, new to the pod, I always uh, link to things uh, we talk about. Uh, I'm going to show Toby now. uh, That's a platypus. Oh. uh, (laughs) A very dodo-esque platypus on the top. Yes. uh, It it doesn't really seem to know Uh, what it is. And and yet if I ask for pictures of a duck, and if I scroll down one, uh, I I had been asking about other things, but the the second one there, that's mid-journey, I just asked for a... A platypus sitting on a secluded riverbank near Sydney, and for some reason in the first one, the platypus is wearing a hat and coat. <laughs> Very wind in the willows uh-huh. scene. That's fun. We can we can laugh. It's it's just for whatever reason, it's associated secluded riverbank with a, an old man in a coat sitting on a riverbank. Except it's a platypus. Well, that's it's it's fun in a historical sense because I I remember the stories when the platypus was first taken back to England when you know people were uh, exploring the Australian continent um, and it was exhibited in London. It was actually believed to be a hoax that they thought that they'd taken uh, a badger and a duck and glued the parts together. Uh, yes, and and yet there it is and. These pictures, it's almost, is it a groundhog? It's, it's a bit lizard-like. Um, I, I, I don't know. Some experts have expressed concern about potential development of super-intelligent AI that could surpass human intelligence. I mean, what measures do you believe should be in place 
to prevent existential risks associated with advanced AI? Well, we should obviously be worried about existential risks, but of course, the the greatest existential risk that faces humanity today is the climate change that that we have precipitated and and you know, closely coming up behind, I suspect, is the um, breakdown in in global accord that we're seeing in the Ukraine and we're seeing in the Middle East today. I think there are some very real threats that we face. I think that AI is a very distant third to those. <sighs> We're sitting, you know, we're recording no global this. extinction from the AI. Well, we're, you know, as an example, you know, we're sitting here in a university recording this pod, surrounded by really smart people. You know, mm. a- academia is a very brutal, um, get evolutionary process of trying to select out intelligent people. And I frequently go to meetings where I'm surprised and impressed by the intelligence in the room. And frequently, those meetings are about how we're not having any impact. We're not changing the world in the way that we feel that we should be changing the world. Uh, I also hang out um, amusingly with lots more politicians these days. And I don't know what, what characteristic they're selecting for in politics, but it's not, I don't think it's intelligence. And I never sit in those meetings uh, where people talk about, are we having enough impact? Indeed, my observation about politics is that they're having, frequently, um, they're talking about reducing the impact the politicians have because of um, they've become corrupt and too powerful and we need to rein in the, what they do. So it seems to me that having, having greater intelligence around is probably not something to fear. It's having greater power is something that it's... The, it's it's power, not intelligence, is the thing to, to worry about. And, and a bit more wisdom, a bit more intelligence on, on the planet would actually help us deal with some of the wicked problems that we do face. We'll come back to uh, those thoughts in just a moment, Toby Walsh. But first, uh, a break for the housekeeping. Not a huge amount of housekeeping this time. So I'll, I'll actually do the plug for money first, right? This podcast is supported by you, the generous listener, through your one-off contributions and your subscriptions. And I want to thank, especially for this episode, Jamie Morrison, who who made a one-off contribution. Thanks very much for that. If you would like to join Jamie and help uh, continue this podcast, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Uh, All the details are there. I will be changing some of those things soon, I think, and mixing it up a bit. But money is always welcome. So go to the 9 slash tip, particularly this month. Uh, revenue from, you know, my other stuff has been a bit thin for the last couple of months. Health reasons, mostly. It happens. Now, the next episode, I'm very pleased... To have on the next episode, uh, cartoonist and artist John Kadelka uh, in Hobart. Uh, for various reasons, uh, uh, me and Snarky Platypus are burning off a whole lot of loyalty points we have. So we're going down to Hobart, going to Mona, talking to John Kadelka. That will be a whole thing. 
Two things relating to that. One, you might want to check out our previous conversation from two years ago. Uh, look for the 9pm Snake Stakes and Mistakes with John Kadilka in your podcast app of choice. And the second thing is, if you are a supporter already with trigger words or a conversation topic uh, for us to use in the chat with John Kadilka, you'll need to get them to me by this coming Monday, the 23rd of October at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time, uh, so that uh, I make sure I have them with me as we uh, we go to his uh, gallery. So that's the next one. Um, and I believe, penciled in, science communicator Upali Divasekra, who said to me just this afternoon, we should do a podcast about frogs. And I thought, why not? Because two new species of frogs have been discovered in Australia, according to the Australian Museum, who emailed me about that again just today. So it's fabulous. Frogs, cartoonists, Hobart, please contribute. The 9pmedict.com slash tip. And now back to Toby Walsh. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will know that occasionally we choose trigger words which have been bought and paid for by listeners of the pod. Normally, we draw them from the uh, the glass jar of transparency or or uh, the chemist warehouse plastic bag of translucency if we're on the road. But I decided to draw, draw it earlier. And what's interesting is that Carletta, hi Carletta, you have asked for a random word. So, Toby, <laughs> I am right now going to randomword.com. There's a website, of course, for everything. Oh, random numbers, random words. I hope it's a true source of randomness taken by some sampling static on the uh, ether or some, some other valid source of randomness. Sadly, I think it's a pseudo-random. It's just pseudo-random. But the random word is soil. 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 Well, it, it, uh, of course, there's uh, fantastic ways that um, AI is starting to be used in precision farming, um, pres- in making sure, for example, that we don't put too much fertilizer in the soil in a couple of ways. One is by using machine learning to actually understand the topography, the geography of the land, and therefore where you might need to put it. And secondly, by using... Um, you know, precision robotics where you um, rather than spray the field which is what you do today because that's the only thing you could easily do actually just spray what are the weeds by using computer vision to actually pick out the weeds um, and therefore use much less um, poison and much and, and equally on the other side of the equation much less fertilizer to have the same impact and that combines with incredibly cheap weather sensors these days for a, a couple hundred bucks. Yes. So you, can, you, can, you can put several of them around the farm. Yes, yeah, so you can know exactly, um, you know, the, uh, how much moisture is in the soil. You can know exactly, therefore, you know, how much water to irrigate with and where, where exactly to put the fertiliser, where to put the weed killer. So, yes, you can, you can make a much more accurate assessment of what to do. Uh, interestingly, I'm mean, you know talking to farmers who who have got on board with this stuff. It it brings up 
the novice farmer to the level of the of the guy or the or the girl who's spent a lifetime learning those fields. This comes back to our, our point about uh, absorbing all of human knowledge mm-hmm. in into the machines. Uh, you can be the best. Well, maybe not the best violinist, but you can get the machine to be the best violinist. Yes. Will we still appreciate the human skill? I suspect we will. Uh, we do. Oh, I think. I think we will. Um, and we actually, we have evidence that we will. Um, so, the example is chess. So, in 1997, Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, one of the best chess players ever to have lived, was beaten by IBM's Deep Blue. Um, and today, chess programs aren't just going to narrowly beat world chess masters like Deep Blue did, but they're going to wipe the floor. If you look at the ELO rating of chess programs um, like Stockfish, the, one of the best chess programs on the, on the planet, it is something like 500 ELO points above um, Magnus Carlsen, who's the current world chess champion, who has probably the highest ELO rating a human ever has, ever had. Um, but if Magnus played st- Stockfish today, a hundred game tournament, he would not win a single game. Wow. Um, a chess program running on someone's mobile phone won an international chess tournament. <laughs> we are not in the same ballpark as, as computers anymore. Um, computers are just so way better. There was a brief moment where centaur chess, that's where humans and computers play together as a team, were better than humans or better than computers on their own. But that moment has passed. Now humans are just getting in the way. But what's interesting, and this goes to your question as to whether we'll, whether we'll appreciate it or not, um, more people earn a living today as professional chess players than back in 1997. Way more players. Really? Yes. Wow. And then the other interesting statistic is that the average level of play, amateur chess, is now played um, at a much higher level than back then for a couple of obvious reasons. One is that because you've got um, some really good chess masters you can practice against um, and also that we understand the game, the game of chess, much better, that there are lines of play that we've now been able to study and analyse that humans weren't patient or smart enough to be able to understand that chess programs have now told us oh that's going to be a winning move Um, and so chess now is a better understood game and a better played game and more people are playing it even though we're actually easily beaten by computers (laughs) this in a roundabout way brings us to the the topic of your your new book faking it and you'll have to remind me of the subtitle artificial intelligence in the human world aha I find it interesting, I'm, I'm not all the way through yet, but I find it interesting that after a, a very good uh, potted history of artificial intelligence, uh, even from the time before computers, um, we're focusing a lot on the artificial part, not the intelligence part, at least in the early part of the book, and what yes. makes that special. Yeah, well, actually, that was one of the drivers when I started writing the book, was a growing realisation that Although artificial intelligence is a much derided name and there's much to, much to be, be disappointed in the name, you know, it's an invitation for people to joke about natural stability or as it was when I first started in the field 40 odd years ago to confuse it with artificial insemination. That was the AI that AI, most people yes. used to know about. 
Um, I've actually grown increasingly to think it's actually quite a good name. Um, the, the word, the the part of the name intelligence is a bit problematic because we don't actually have very good definition of intelligence. But um, most people have an understanding, an informal understanding at least, of what intelligence is, and that's what we're trying to make in machines. We we can tell yes that person's intelligent yes. or that person's not based. Yes. Fairly quickly, too. Yes, and that's the Turing test in some sense. Um, but there's also, an inc- and this is you know, one, one of the main messages in the book, there's that other word there, artificial, which I think actually has a really important role to play. It should remind us that it, the intelligence that we build in machines is going to be quite artificial, quite different to human intelligence. And it would be wrong to suppose it's going to be like human intelligence. It is natural for us to do that it's a natural conceit for us to do that because that's our experience when we wake up in the morning and you know we've got a a very rich profound experience of intelligence ourselves it's the one that we have the one that that we experience and so it's a natural conceit to think well maybe machines are going to you know have an intelligence that is similar but every indication that we've got so far from the limited ai that we've built so far suggests that it's going to be quite a different, quite a different flavour, quite a different characteristics than human intelligence. It breaks in quite different ways. It has quite different capabilities. It has quite different advantages and disadvantages. And so that we should always be mindful of that um, when, we, when we start building AI and start handing responsibility over to it. What sort of things have you noticed so far in, in, in terms of those differences? Well, as an example, they're... Kenya starting with a K. Kenya starting with a K, yes. yes it's, it's not understanding the words quite the same way as us, but there's, there's lots of good examples. So we, we know, for example, that you can take a computer vision system that can recognise objects. I mean, the sort of computer vision system that's now actually in many people's cars that will recognise pedestrians that will stand in front of the car um, and put the brakes on automatically or identify... Um, you know, other cars um, that might be obstacles. Um, those computer vision systems, though, can be easily fooled. Indeed, there are ad- what we call adversarial examples where you can change a single pixel, a single dot in the image, and you can turn the what is recognised as a car to be what is recognised as a banana. And what's interesting is that, you know, a human looking at those same images with that one pixel changed will say they're both cars. We won't say one is a banana and one is a car. Probably won't even notice. Probably won't even notice the one pixel. Maybe it's almost imperceptible difference. Um, Now, it's not that human vision system can't be hacked. Human vision system is easily hacked. Optical illusions are, you know, a catalogue of examples of way that we can hack computer uh, human vision systems. Um, but computer vision systems can be hacked, but in completely different ways with just, you know, one pixel that is different to human vision. So computers are seeing the world and they do perceive the world now as accurately as humans, but obviously in somewhat different way than humans are seeing the world. I'm thinking here to of robots and the idea that we will build humanoid robots. But in fact, most of the robots out there today are nothing like humans. I mean, if you if you go uh, to the northwest of Western Australia, there are plenty plenty of robots roaming around. They look like trucks, or they look like excavating machines, or whatever it might be. Yes, yeah, there's is actually there are very few places where you actually really want a humanoid, human shaped robot. 
um, because it's actually quite difficult to engineer robots to stand upright and walk on two legs. Much easier to build them with wheels. Um, there, there are a few places where you will do it. Uh, mostly those are in space. Mostly they're in places where they're human environments. So if, you've, if you're flying man personed missions in space. Crude, we can crude, say. Crude, miss, crude mission, missions. Although that can be misheard for <laughs> terribly crude and unsophisticated missions, but yes. All, all the panels and controls are obviously designed for humans to use them. So um, it therefore makes sense to have a human-like robot to be able to um, interact with those control panels in a similar way. But apart from that... Um, there are very few places, I think, where you actually really, it makes engineering sense to have a humanoid robot. Most of the humanoid robots that turn up in our lives here on planet Earth are there to make us, um, I think, be happier and less um, provoked by them, to, to make us feel that they're you know, a, a pleasant character to have around. Um, they're not there for any engineering purpose. Then again, look at uh, R2-D2. That's a space robot designed to assist in the piloting of a spaceship, and yes. it just plugs in. Yes. I mean, yeah, what, why? It, it always seemed odd to me that you, you want the computer to control something, so you put the computer in a humanoid body to have it extend fingers to press buttons, which is just closing electrical switches. Yes. It, it it always seemed to me, even from a very, very early age, just... Just connect it up. Why do you need all of this carry-on? But you've you've nailed it there. We want to feel comfortable with them around. Yes. Yes, but that equally raises some potential challenges, potential problems, um, which is that we're going to be increasing, and this is you know another um, lesson that comes out of the book, which is that we're going to be increasingly deceived and mistaken that there's going to be all this AI fakes in the real world and in the virtual world for sure, which is not real, is not human, that we're going to mistake for human. And that could be quite problematic. And we're going to be, already we're starting to see deep fakes that are fooling us. That picture of the Pope in a puffer jacket, that was a fake, that was made yeah. by a computer. The, okay, that was a bit of fun, you know. The only person who was, you know, harmed was, was perhaps the Pope and... The Pope, if he'd had any sense at all, would have gone out and bought himself a puffer jacket and owned it. <laughs> he didn't, sadly. But uh, that was an opportunity for the Pope he missed. The papacy is not known for its, its well, wry it sense of humour. I know, it could, but it could have, could have surprised us all. But, you know, there are other images that are much more challenging. Those pictures that you might have seen of Trump being arrested by the NYPD. Mm. Well... Trump was not arrested by the NYPD. He was arrested by other police forces, but not the NYPD. And not in that way. And not in that way. Um, but those pictures, you know, were controversial enough that you could imagine that they could have started a riot. Didn't, you know, January the 6th didn't take much more than that. That's, that's true. And, and, and you know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, contra controversial imagery coming out of the Middle East at the moment. It's hard to know what to believe. We're going to end up, I fear, in a world in which there is nothing that you can trust online. That anything you see, anything you hear, you have to entertain the idea. It was synthetic. That it was made to fool you. 
we already interact with customer service robots. They're text-based chat. And they're, they're increasingly, you know, there might be a human under the hood playing as recorded messages if it's in voice. But certainly the chat bots are there. We, yes. They're getting better. Um, some people identify it and say, hi, I'm your virtual assistant. Others less so. <laughs> should, should I mean, we can tell... The typical customer service bot at the moment, we can tell pretty quickly that it, it, it it's a machine because it's a bit dumb. That's going to change, and it's going to yes. change. Well, it is changing now very fast. Um, uh, customer service uh, companies that I heard from only last month were saying, well, look, we have... Uh, oddly enough, it was a company that makes chatbots. They're saying we have 200 people doing customer service at the moment, and I'll tell you what, next year it'll it'll be only a quarter of that. Yeah, bad news if you're a customer service agent. That that job, I fear, is is departing. That those people aren't going to be paid. It's going to be much cheaper, much easier, much more reliable. Mm. You know exactly what they say. Um, they're not going to go off script, unlike humans can go off script. They're going to say exactly whatever the corporate line is. Um, and the company's going to save money. Uh, and for the consumer, I mean, in some sense, that's good news. You, three o'clock in the morning, you can ring up. There's a, a computer always waiting to answer your call. Um, but bad news if your job is being a customer service agent. And also, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think we need to know. I think, um, you know, your time is the most precious thing on the mm. planet. You don't get it again. Um, and I have proposed this idea, this, this, the Turing red flag laws, that, that we should be informed if it's a computer rather than a person, because otherwise we're going to be easily taken in. And that just as you have a right to know that your call is being recorded... Possibly you need a right to know that this is not a human you're talking to, even though it sounds very much like a human and that it's just a, a robot that can waste infinite amounts of your time. I saw a cartoon the other day, and I, I'll link to it if I can find it. Uh, two people in a, in a work situation, uh, both using AI. One is using an AI to generate the 10-page report, sending it off to their boss, who then uh -huh. uses AI to summarise it back down to one page. Um, <laughs> so that there's this exercise in, in a symbolic creation of the comprehensive report, which, which no one reads but another computer. Um, we are already seeing the chatbots chatting to each other, aren't we? We are. And it's, it's worth pointing out, we, you and I, are going to have our own chatbots. It's not just customer service. These, this is going to be very accessible, very cheap technology, so that you're going to have a personal assistant. If you want, it can, it can sound like you. And this is, again, why we, we perhaps need these warning signs that, that you ring someone up and you think you're talking to Toby. It sounds like Toby. It speaks in the style of Toby. It knows, seems to know everything that Toby used to know when you asked him questions. It knows all about his diary and um, the books he's written. And it probably can answer those quite capably. But it will turn out just to be my chatbot that I've trained on all of my data. I can think of some weird and creepy ways in which that could be misused. I mean, we have enough problems with, you know, controlling relationships and uh, crime to straight out fraud, all sorts of things. I mean, I've got probably way more than enough of your voice recorded here now to build a very realistic voice pattern. 
of Toby Walsh. You only need 10 seconds of my voice. Really? Yes. Microsoft have a tool called Vale, play on Dale um, with voice. That Fortunately, so far, they've refused to release publicly because it's been trained on tens of thousands of hours of voice so it can speak. But then to specialise it to sound like you, they claim they only need 10 seconds. They could just ring up your answer phone, get 10 seconds, sample your voice to actually sound like you. That's intriguing because in 10 seconds, you can't even do the full range of no. vowels and consonants. No. So it must... It's well, interpolating. What it's inter yes, if, if you say an et like that, then you probably say an at yes. in this other way. Yes. Because all these millions of people do that. So we've already seen banks being robbed by people cloning voices of... of company director and ringing up and saying i want to transfer some some of the corporate funds to acquire this other business my lawyer's going to be in touch with the details next and 30 million dollars disappeared out of a dubai bank um i say to people now actually you need to sit down with your family and agree what's the safe question what's the question that only you as a family know the answer to so this is a bit like those, you know, what is the one that will give away that you're under duress if yes. you suddenly say, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of football. And they yes. go, no, no, you're not. Yes, exactly. No, you I'm want to have a safe phrase, a safe question, so that people know it's you. What if your personal AI is so close to you <laughs> that it can guess? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, well, like, okay. it's like the old password guessing, yes. isn't it? Oh, look around. Well, What's on the post? Before those AIs are too... Too smart and too much in our lives. You need to agree what those safe questions are. <laughs> <laughs> so which of the questions I've asked you was the one written by ChatGPT? <laughs> I have no idea. It could be any of them or it could be none of them. Okay. It's, I mean, that's... Because there, there, there was one. There was one. Okay, I'm not surprised. I, um, well, maybe I'm a little... Um, disappointed for, for journalism as a whole that it's now got to the point where you can't tell the difference. very hard to tell the mm. difference. Well, it was the one, uh -huh. and the tell, if you knew this was going to happen, was, was that I was very careful to read one exactly word oh, for word. Okay, okay. And it was the one about some experts have expressed concerns about the potential development of superintelligent AI that could surpass human intelligence. <laughs> what measures do you believe should be in place to prevent existential risks associated uh -huh. with advanced AI? And I, I, uh, well, I so did beautiful. see your body language go, why has he? Yes. Uh, we have you to, did have detect to that, that, that was out of place somehow. Yes, yes, yes. It, it didn't quite flow. Mm. Um, but I am bemused that the AI question was the one about the risks of AI <laughs> <laughs> that it itself was making, yes. Uh, yes. Very meta. Someone did a lovely piece. Uh, I, I think it was uh, written by a human, but it was mocked up as a chat GPT conversation. And it said, what is asking chat GPT, what is your timeline uh, for um, AGI, artificial general intelligence? And the answer just came back, 10. What do you mean, 10? <laughs> Nine. <laughs> very good. Uh, it's, it's, very, it's too good a joke for, yes. for the chat to come up with. Well, one hopes that was in the training data. Oh. There was a human originally. That's just I think a human wrote the whole thing. Yes. 
and it's a mock-up of a it's screenshot. A mock-up. I okay. suspect. Okay. I suspect. I haven't looked any further. Look, while we're here, we're sitting here at the University of New South Wales. You are chief scientist of the AI Institute here. You've been up and running a year now. Solved everything? <laughs> um, no, sadly not. AI is still a huge, great problem. I mean, what is my timeline? A problem, yes. Um, to, to artificial general intelligence. Um, well, I did write a book which whose title was 2062, which was the timeline, I think. Yeah, we spoke about that last year. Is it I still suspect, 2062? Yes, I suspect like most of my colleagues... I have decided that that was a little too pessimistic. I would really. Oh, I thought you might have said optimistic. No, no, that that it's twenty fifty two or twenty. Uh, it's not going to take as long as that. That we are making significant strides. You know, for example, we seem to have a pretty good command, at least a fluency of language, if not understanding of language, and that's that was certainly quite a quite a step forwards. Not to say that there's still significant challenges in terms of you know the reasoning capabilities. We you know the the jug example, but there's there's plentiful other examples of how remarkably stupid these can be because they're not understanding. They're saying what's probable, not what's true. Mm. Um, and that's not it's not clear what we need to do to fix those sorts of problems. And it's not even what's probably true. It's what's probably going to come out of a human's mouth. Yes. Or their fingers on a keyboard because yes. it's text. It's what might they say, which means it gets defensive when it's caught out lying. Well, not lying, because lying has intent. <laughs> yes, would imply you knew what the truth was, I suppose. Yes. Um, I, I had an, an exchange a while back. Um, uh, I was watching a video about a particular class of destroyers in a navy, and this particular class of destroyer was unusually big. And so I thought, well, you know, uh, if that's that big, let's pick one at uh, uh, 4,000 tonnes. And I said, well, what are uh, some, some classes of destroyer that are about 4,000 tonnes? And it gave me back a whole bunch of destroyer class names, some down as low as 1,500 tonnes and up to whatever. And without fact-checking that, I just thought, well, hang on, they're not really close to 4,000 4, tonnes. <laughs> you know, what What would you say is close to 4,000? It said, oh, plus or minus 200 tonnes. And I said, all right, so can I have ones close to 4,000? And it came back again <laughs> with with this wide variation. And then it said, so then I just asked, what is 4,000 plus 200 and it says 4,200, sorry. And it appeared to realise that I was relating this to the previous context and it got all defensive. Uh, I, as I say, I didn't fact-check to see whether any of these were, in fact, destroyer classes or the right tonnage. Um, I suspect not. Well, one of the problems here is that is a design decision. It's not an AI problem. It's a design problem, which is that these are stochastic. They're, they're probab- probabilistic programs mm. you know if you run them again they produce a different output and they did it was a conscious design choice not to share not to surface those probabilities with with users not to say so everything it says it says with great confidence it says as though that's exactly the case whereas there are underneath the hood there are probabilities under there mm. And you could have, and indeed, actually, there's starting to be a few large language models where they're starting to play with this, where you could have tried to surface those probabilities. And, and for example, you give one answer and you say, oh, this is a 
99.99% confident, you know, this is the only answer I'm going to give you on this. I'm, you know, very, very certain about this answer. And then others where it's, it's really a coin toss. But it never tells you, oh, this is a coin toss. If you ask me this again, I'll say the opposite next time. Um, and there are people now starting to you know, build large language models where they actually try and surface those probabilities. So if it's, if it's not very probable, they change the color of the text. So you know that it's, ah. you know, this is actually, actually is not very certain about what it's saying here. What if it's lying? <laughs> so, you know, the best... Actually, How the, confident are you, ChatGPT? Yes. And it is, I'm very confident. Yes, the, the best description I think I've had of, the, of large language models is that they are the perfect mansplainers. <laughs> and that's a delightful note to end on. Yeah. Toby Walsh, thanks so much again for your time. It's always a pleasure. So, yes, that conversation was recorded a week ago on the 13th of October 2023. Toby's new book is called Faking It, Artificial Intelligence in a Human World. It's from Black Ink Books. I'm nearly finished it. It is a really easy read, but everything is, of course, referenced because he's an academic, um, and it's, it's, it's good. Uh, the first bit, as I said, up the front is a really good history of artificial intelligence. And this book uh, concentrates on the, the kind of artificial aspects of it and why that most, uh, might be both good and bad. So, yeah, I recommend it. I should write a proper review anyway. Um, faking it, artificial intelligence in a human world. And before I go, a reminder, there are links to all the things we talk about on the podcast website, including those chat GPT transcripts. I will say I didn't have the transcripts in front of me when we were recording, so I kind of got the, the gist of them, but I got it wrong. So if you really care about, you know, facts and accuracy and stuff like that, you might want to check the originals. It's quite fun, Um trying to get ChatGPT to understand things. Anyway, that's it for this time. Well, it is. I mean, what can I say? Uh, links at the podcast website, the9pmedict.com, which is kind of my website, but click through to Edict. Send tips, like, subscribe in your podcast app of choice, tell your friends, send money. The next, uh, the next episode, in one week's time, with John Kadelka. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.